Coming up, Jerry Bauer, an economist and a Christian on Makers and Takers. Welcome to another Real American Heroes special edition. I'm Oliver North. Our guest today, Jerry Bauer. He's an economist, a public speaker for business conferences, a frequent radio and television guest, and the author of this great book right here. Jerry and his wife Susan have seven children, three of which are still at home. Jerry and Susan homeschool all seven of their kids. He's written three books, and his latest right here is Something You Need to Get. Jerry, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. I've long been an admirer of yours. Well, you're kind, brother. Look, at you and I know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I'm just bold about that. Doesn't In fact, my kids say, Dad, all the filters are gone now. And I'm <laughs> old enough that they are. So I don't mind saying that. I know where you're coming from. But most economists don't understand Jesus. And most of the folks that preach the word don't understand the economy of Jesus. Give us a sense for what that's like. What he was yeah. teaching about work and money. Yeah, see, that's it. That's the real problem because we have like the academic theologians or the pastors who do not have a grasp of economics or really in many cases just even what it's like to be in the marketplace. Um, and we have economists, some of whom are free market even um, and Christian economists, but they're, they're not biblical scholars. They don't know the languages. They don't know the geography. Um, so the, the two never come together. And the problem for me was that uh, yeah, I, I'm, I read the Gospels, I study them, I'm an economist, and I can't forget economics when I read the Gospels. No matter how hard I try, I can't forget what I know as an economist, which means things are always popping off the page at me that are not part of the traditional academic theological discussion or the traditional piety or pulpit discussion, but if, in cases in which Jesus is clearly saying very direct things about economics that we've just tended to gloss over. And I think we, at this, this time in history, we can't gloss over what he has to say any longer. Well, particularly given that the economy in the United States right now, and, and globally as well, is in very serious, it's meeting very serious challenges. I mean, it seems to me that the dignity of work has been diminished because there's fewer jobs. All of the kinds of things that Jesus was seeing 2,000 years ago it kind of makes you wonder if we're seeing it all again. Has it all been said and written already? Well, I think that what Jesus has to say, we can uncover more than we have in the past. The church has had the Gospels for 2,000 years, but we haven't had biblical archaeology for 2,000 years. We haven't had the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. So, I mean, medieval Christians and Reformation Christians, they had no idea what Nazareth, Nazareth was like. No one had dug it up yet. Well, we now know what it was like. And we now know what Jesus's economic environment was like. He came from an entrepreneurial culture. And up until basically about 20 years ago, the standard view was that Jesus came from a very poor culture, that his followers were very poor, that they were essentially homeless people and peasants, and that Jesus was leading some kind of peasant revolt against property. That's nonsense. All of the archaeology all points in the same direction that Galilee was, let's call it a small business entrepreneurial coming up class, not a wealthy class, but an aspirational class like my neighbors who are builders or whatever. You know, they're, they're like coming up, you know, economically as they're raising families. And that economy was growing and it was dynamic. So Jesus's followers weren't ne'er-do-wells who were, wanted to tear down the economic system. Their economic system was working pretty well. It's when Jesus goes south into political territory 
down close to Jerusalem and confronts the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus the tax collector, the, uh, the money changers, that's when all the anti-wealth rhetoric comes out. And we've tried to read, we tried to take Jesus's statement against politicians. He says after meeting a rich young ruler, it's harder for a wealthy man to, to go into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And we use that, we beat up on entrepreneurs. But Jesus didn't say that to the entrepreneurs up in Galilee. He didn't say that to any of his successful neighbors. He waits until he gets down into the Washington, D.C. area where he you know, starts talking to the lobbyists and the senators and the rest of it. That's when the, that's when the, the, the message about wealth gets most pointed. You know, I, I, I lead groups out to the Holy Land and have done so for many, many years. And, and they've now unearthed Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from. Very clear that that was a very successful little community right on the, just right, literally right off the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And salt and, and the kinds of things that Jesus uses parables about are very visible in that kind of an environment. Give me a sense for what you're seeing now in archaeology that demonstrates more of what we just talked about. Well, I think the, the biggest find overwhelmingly is we used to think of Nazareth as a kind of a town in, in and of itself, but it was really an exurb. And it's interesting now that exurbs and suburbs are kind of under attack. It was an exurb of Sepphoris, and nobody knew about Sepphoris until they dug it up. Sepphoris was basically a morning's walk away. It was within commute distance. Um, it was the financial capital of Galilee during most of Jesus's early years. And there was a building boom during that time period. They had revolt, they rebelled against Rome. It was completely destroyed. And then the time that Jesus is a teenager, there's a building boom. It's inconceivable that Joseph and son builders would not have worked at Sepphoris. I mean, there's only so many plows and doors you can fix in a village of a hundred in Nazareth, right? So they, they would have worked there and they would have been around bankers and investors and import export people. Uh, we know now in Sepphoris, there were wealthy people there. There are, there are mansions even. There's no denunciation from Jesus ever recorded um, of the wealth in Galilee. He had wealthy people there, but they were they were makers of wealth. Right. The point of the book is maker versus the takers. We know in economics that there are people who are makers and then there are politically politically connected people who are takers. That's an that's an idea that's familiar. What I don't think we've understood up until recently is that Jesus sided with the makers against the takers when it came to economics. He rebuked the takers and said to the makers, ye are the salt of the earth. Did economics have anything to do with the execution of Jesus? Yes, this is something that's so fascinating to see how the different disciplines don't talk to one another, because all the Roman historians know that there was a tremendous financial crisis, very much like our 2008-2009 crisis, almost identical, a deflationary bank crisis. And guess when that was happening? 32 and 33 AD. Now, Roman historians know about that. Gospel um, exegetes, they, they're not Roman historians, so they don't know. So to bring those two things together, it, all of a sudden, there's something that makes sense that there was a crackdown on the financial markets by the emperor Tiberius, and, and Pilate was aligned with the financial industry and the banking houses. So Pilate lost his political cover. So why, people have always wondered, why did Pilate give in? Pilate hated the Jews. He wouldn't give in to that mob. 
um, he was there to crack heads, right? Um, he was he was like a, a harsh man. Uh, Philo thought that he was wanted to kill all the Jews, and yet on in this particular occasion, he gives in to the mob and executes an innocent man. Why? Because there was a financial panic, just like now, when you have financial crises, people become afraid. You get more mob justice. We've got mob justice going on right now, and we just had a great depression. They had mob, Jesus faced mob justice during a great depression that was imposed top down from the government. So if, if we ignore the economic aspects of this, then we won't understand that what happens in finance and economics is spiritual and affects the spiritual realm and vice versa. In God's mind, they're all an interconnected plan. And so you've got the ruling class in the aftermath of this new lesson, the, 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 if you will, the parables, the gospels, as we call them, looking at Jesus then versus Jesus now, and it's the same Jesus. But you point out in this book that the makers and takers are still with us, right? And apparently there's not a lot of understanding of that in the modern Jerusalem being Washington, D.C. Right, there isn't. Um, because what, what I generally hear from people is to the degree that they quote Jesus on economics, it's politicians quoting, uh, you know, quoting the Gospels against entrepreneurs when Jesus's toughest statement about wealth was made to politicians. Uh, so now I believe that politicians can be saved. I'm not saying that if you, you know, go into Congress with $10,000 in the bank and you come out with 40 million that you can't be saved. All I'm saying is that Jesus's harshest words were against the people who seem to want to use Jesus's uh, words against people who are much more like the Galileans that he, that he came from. Uh, so it's kind of a reversal. And I think we need to go back to the real Jesus who messed with the ruling class messed with their money. Early in his life, he messed with their theology. They got mad. Later, he messed with their money and they killed him. It was his assault on the economic extraction order that was the main reason they decided to murder him. Jerry, 50 years from now, when you and my great-grandkids are studying this extraordinary time in our history, what do you want them to know about what you did personally? Well, I can tell you 35 years ago, I was watching you um, or sometime around then watching you in a congressional hearing um, and seeing what you were what you were going undergoing. And that was a turning point for me. And I said, what do I want the next generation to be like? Because something's gone wrong here. And I turned off that TV and I sat my oldest son, that time, my only son on my knee and I started to teach him the catechism. Um, and he's grown up to be the man that I wanted him to be. So I would say the same thing now about my grandchildren, the grandchildren that come from these children, that what you were up against was something that was wrong in the culture from decades before, right? Uh, you know, the people didn't want to fight communism because they didn't understand the dangers of it because they had bought into too much of it. Um, and I saw what happened to you and I said, I'm going to make a long-term investment in the next generation. So what I would want to see is now my children, my adult children, making a long-term investment in the next generation and emulating Jesus because he really is the only real answer. Conservatism by itself isn't the answer. Common sense isn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. And it's all in this book. My thanks for being with us today, Jerry, providing facts that our fellow Americans can use in these challenging times. Thank you. God bless you. 
Folks, if this Real American Heroes broadcast has been informative, helpful, or encouraging, as it has been for me, take time now to subscribe and let me know how these unprecedented events have affected you and yours. And by doing so, you'll become part of this historical record of how America persevered and once again prospered. Till next time, remember, Semper Fidelis is more than a slogan for U.S. Marines. Always faithful is a way of life.